Welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're speaking to you from the Mary Backstage Theater Arts Collection here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we're talking about yet another early Iron Age inscription, this one a massive four or maybe even five letters, spelling out the name Yeroval, found at the site of Khirbet el-Rai near Lachish in southern Israel. Is this evidence for scribal schools in proto-Israelite society, or just some guy who got an alphabetically curious neighbor to write his name on his jar so no one would steal it from the break room? What is the significance of all these teeny tiny little inscriptions for literacy, social organization, and historical memory? And how does it lead to unusual reading choices among suburban 10-year-olds in the 1960s? Okay, so since the topic today is writing, again, I came up with a lightning round. Um, most memorable book read in childhood. Hmm. Hmm. Well, do I, do I have to start? Are these getting too esoteric? No, they're not. I, childhood is such a huge. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and that's not a one, one book answer. I mean, so you start. Yeah, Alex, you start. Okay, um, I was about 10 and I read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There we go. So, uh, all right. I'm just gonna leave that right there. <laughs> Good idea. I fold. <laughs> I, yeah, I was gonna say either the Bobsy Twins or um, the Phantom Tollbooth. So. Oh, those are those are very good books. <laughs> I was going to say where the wild things are, but oh. you know. <laughs> how could you even lift that book? <laughs> Two hands, basically. <laughs> you know. You know, it's so, funny though. Every family, growing up, every family, Jewish family, had a copy of that book in their house. Oh, sure. That's true. Right. But most I can't imagine them, my parents ever read it. Well, right, and and no kids write, read it. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> a, a hum. <laughs> One kid read it, <laughs> so that that worked out. That worked out well for me. <laughs> and it does explain a lot. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> Not to say it's the final piece of the puzzle, <laughs> but it's really a pretty key one. Yeah, this podcast brings out all sorts of revelations, doesn't it? Well, that's the thing. All scholarship, all podcasts, all it is is the really under, it's just the way we work to understand ourselves. There you it's, go. It's that's much all. cheaper than therapy. And, <laughs> right. And, you but know, it's much harder. Than therapy. Well, 
I guess. I don't know. <laughs> there's, I guess there's less weeping involved, at least on our part. I can't speak for our listener. Um, well, we're getting a little far afield before we get started. Okay, bring us well, that we have. I mean, you know, anytime you kid says his favorite book was Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, you're really much, you're really pretty much set your back, you know, at least 50 years. Right. That's that's very true. Um, but I assume this lightning round was brought up because we're talking about an inscription. So inscription reminded you of books. Exactly. Okay. Precisely. Okay. But it's not, this, this isn't really, it's how many letters are we talking about? One, um, two, three, four letters, and maybe a fifth letter. All right. Before but we get into good letters. Before we get, be get in, before we get into quantification versus qualification, which is of course, you know, always a huge, huge issue in the archaeology of the Southern Levant, because the portions are always so small. Um, well, yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I, and I have a bone to pick about that. <laughs> but it's a very small bone that's yeah, exactly. been analyzed to the chicken. nth degree. It's from a chicken wing. <laughs> yeah. So how about we uh, introduce the topic and sort of sketch out some of the issues before we get into idea. that. Okay. Why don't you do that? No, no, this is not my, my role. I'm the, I'm the guy in the, in the back. We need, we need uh, what, was, what was her name? Car uh, Carol Merrill bringing the box down. <laughs> Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> All right. So there was this inscription found. From a site. From the site of Khirbet El Rai. Um, and, uh, Four which, kilometers west of Lachish. Right. Or, or Lakish to you. <laughs> so Those of you who are unfamiliar with any kind of Semitic languages. Um, a tiny little site in the, in the southern part of the Shvela. It's a little, it's a little tiny site. Yeah. And it's an Iron Age site uh, from the late Iron Age one and the early Iron Age two. So no, well, not what? late Iron Age one. It's they're dating it to the late twelfth, early eleventh. Okay, I read. Okay, okay, yeah. Well, I read Iron Age one B, so I said late Iron Age one. Mm. But yeah, um, and there's a later stratum too, right. tenth century. But uh, but that's not so relevant to us today. Right, and there's a silo. There's, there are many silos. There's 20 silos. Oh, I didn't know that. I <laughs> and in one of them, they hit the jackpot. They did. Um, on, on the last day. Of course. It's always now, last day. Now, now, should we do a sidebar here about last day yes, kinds definitely. of finds? <laughs> um, you know, a classic sort of thing that that is so unbelievable, and yet it it seems to always happen, and I and I don't know why. Is it because everybody's looking harder, working harder, or is it just for I, Bella I Fortuna? Yeah, I I think it's just complete, completely serendipitous. Yeah, let's think of all the examples we can come up with. Well, I think the Mickney example is always the best. Yeah, I don't, how, I don't know how you can top that. Yeah, this huge inscription that actually has the name of the site on it, and the name of the king, and the name of the king coming up on the last day. Right. Um, is and it I, is it true that um, Kenyon found the um, the the first uh, plastered skull on the last day by just kind of reaching into the bulk and pulling it out? 
<laughs> it's a good story. It is a good yeah. story. I tell it in my classes all the time. I'm not sure if it's true. <laughs> it's been passed down as part of the oral tradition. Right. Yeah. Like gargling. <laughs> <laughs> well, and tell Dan. Was that the last day? I think it was a, the last day of the last season. No, because they oh. found more of it later. Well, yeah, but then they went back because they found it. Oh, thought, they, oh yeah, so I thought it was supposed to be the last season. And of course, they're still digging there, so it's really hard to say. Right. <laughs> what I mean, is first? What is right, last? Right, right. I mean, Where does it all of, end? But in the case of Mickney, it's an unimpeachable example of the last day right. because it was the last day of the excavation. The site has never, ever been, you know, re-excavated since then. Right. Yet. Yet, of course. Josie <laughs> will go back there and probably find a much larger inscription. Right. Well, that's, that should bring us to a rare, for us, discussion or mention of, um, of a personal name, the Discoverer. The Discoverer. Yes. Josie Garfinkel. Our pal. Is, is now establishing a tradition of excavating tiny Iron Age sites Iron Age 1, 10th century, and finding inscriptions, finding ostraca. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's shown great, uh, great agility in this. And it's, he's, the, he's the magic man. He's the, he's, he's the ostraca whisperer. whisperer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and honestly, he should just, they should just give him a list of sites, to, small sites, to just go out, excavate, and find ostraca. Like he, a human dowsing rod. Ex exactly. <laughs> Go see the diviner. Come through the sites on the last day of any excavation season. <laughs> That's right. right. Just blindfold him and spin him around, <laughs> and he'll point, and you'll dig there. But it is it is quite uh, quite something. He's done it at Kayafa, and now he's done it again at El Rey. And uh, this is a very uh, this is a very important find. Uh, yeah. Regardless of what we have to say about it or anything else, I don't think anyone can dispute the value and importance of all of these ostraca. Uh, and then of course, we'll get into the issues of, of just how many we have and the quality, et cetera, and all of those kinds of things. But just right off from the top, um, this is big. Uh, and all of these Iron Age one and 10th century ostraca <clears throat> are big. Uh, Beit Shemesh, Safi, um, all the stuff from Lachish, uh, Kayafa, and now El Rey. Uh, they all really help us immeasurably in um, putting more meat on the bones of both the RNH1 and uh, sort of an entry point for the Hebrew Bible and archaeology. But that's the question, though. What kind of bones are they? Are, <laughs> are, these, are these still little chicken bones in terms of what they were writing, how much they were writing? Or are we talking about maybe an ungulate-sized bone? <laughs> In terms well, of, because most of these things are, in this case, uh, four, four plus letters. Maybe it forms the pers personal name, Yuval. And a lot of them are like that with a right. little bit of ball, a little bit of a couple of syllables, a couple of, of consonants smushed yeah. together. A lot yeah. of personal names, not a lot of, and then we went <laughs> here. No and right. did this. Right. No, so they're, they're very much narratives. against the narrative. There's no narrative. No narrative. These are, this is like writing a kid's name on the back of his underwear before <laughs> sending him to camp, except they're doing it on pots. 
Right. The Why? What's the point? This is my pot. <laughs> this oh. is Euroval's pot. Okay. Well, I won't touch it then. <laughs> but fine. Didn't, didn't you see I put my name on my lunch? Well, exactly. <laughs> Are you going to just ignore that and eat my lunch? <laughs> that was exactly, exactly it. Yeah. Right. It was in the common fridge, <laughs> but you ate right. it anyway. Right. Now, that's a really good point, especially because this inscription was on a small jugger, juglet. Um, and uh, what, you know, what was in it that, that this guy um, needed to make sure no one else would take? Well, and that, okay, so. We need to back up though. Right, because there's so many issues about this. <laughs> <We> <laughs> I mean, said I need to back up. There's no end of issues. So there's up. the issue that, that Alex just raised. And then there is the issue of the immediate interpretation given to these things in these popular articles and even in that that published article in this new journal of the archaeology of Jerusalem, this online. And already we get uh, inferences being drawn. So already this pot is said to contain something precious. Perfume, you know, unguents, oil, something. And it's like, really? Why? Because there's a name on it? No, because it's small. Because it's a juglet. Right. But it could also just contain oil, olive oil. Right, that's true, absolutely. I mean, it could, it could contain a small amount of wine, a personal use. I mean, it doesn't have to contain something precious. That's true. But that's there's true. a whole level of circularity because of the paucity of the, these kinds of finds from the Southern Levant. Right. If we have an inscription and it's a jug, the jug must be you know, being used to, to store you know, very special, <laughs> something very special. And, um, and that's because it has a name on it. And it's just circular and circular and circular. Right. So, but we get these kinds of things immediately and that's never gonna change, right? right? So forever, this vessel is always going to be described until they do some kind of analysis of the contents or if that can be done, which it can't be because these right. shirts, there's it's only just, a couple of shirts. It's just tiny little shirts, right? Right. Um, we're forever going to be dealing with this as you know, a name was found on a vessel that contained a precious commodity, right? And right. that's all. And and if oh, and, and, and comparatively, <clears throat> if you try, you can't use that reasoning. Let's say anywhere in Mesopotamia, right? Because mm-hmm. every damn thing has a has a name on it, right? Right. Oh, look, it's a brick with a name, it's right? Like you know, you kick uh, you kick every other brick; it has a name on it, right? Um, yeah. And and so on, right? And and so, because it's only us. <laughs> poor, sh- poor schleppers. Right, exactly. Logic this kicks in. Published this way in, in the popular press, the context is always going to be lost because it was found in this silo uh, with lots of tiny other little pieces of pottery as if it's just kind of been dumped in there, a silo that's not being it's used. Garbage. For current right. It was garbage. Right, and all of the pottery found in that silo was just, you know, a domestic assemblage, a very typical domestic assemblage. And it's very clear that it was just refuse that was dumped into a silo. Right. Um, and so, it would be interesting to see what's found in all of these other silos. So that begs the question, how important was this artifact to the site itself? It clearly wasn't that important. Well, by it, the time it was thrown in, it wasn't that right. important. Right, t- exactly. That's what I mean. By the time it was thrown in, there was no curation. There was no you know, inherent value to it that people kept it into the 10th century, the, you know, the, the subsequent right. freedom, none of that. 
Right, exactly. This is like the opposite of what we were talking about last time with the shark teeth, where they were keeping it as an artifact for generations. Exactly. Oh, very good. Yeah. Exactly. Right. That's um, Extra points for reflexivity or <laughs> reflexology, whatever it is that <laughs> you're, you're doing there. Um, yeah, it's but you know every every uh, artifact in the Southern Levant and probably the rest of the Levant gets a that has an inscription gets a, a pedestal and big spotlights in a museum on it, and and people the, are captured by. With the Beit David inscription, they've actually chalked in the letters that say Beit David so that everybody can see them. Right, and there, there's big signs and right. flashing lights. And uh... all right, well then let's let's maybe talk about what we each one of us think is the most important dynamic about this particular artifact before we before we get off on the whole you know uh, paucity of finds and making a big deal about everything and all that kind of stuff. Well, if we didn't make a big deal about everything, then <laughs> where would we be? Okay, so you begin. Yeah. Mr. <laughs> you know, what everybody thinks. <laughs> okay. Um, I think that um, the most important thing is uh, this point made by the one of the uh, epigraphers involved in the analysis, Chris Ralston, uh, that we do have some kind of a link between um, archaic Canaanite writing of the Late Bronze Age and earlier uh, Middle Bronze Age, Late Bronze Age, and uh, you know some form of of the earliest Hebrew inscriptions. So we're we, we're starting very slowly, and this is you know the other side of it in a very very small modest way to um, get a fuller picture of the development of writing and the transformation or the development of writing from a late Bronze Age Canaanite tradition into a Iron Age uh, Israelite tradition. And that opens up a whole other thing. So that's what I think the most important thing is. I'll, I'll, say, I'll say one thing about that. <laughs> if you only say one thing about that, I feel like <laughs> an incredible job. Yeah, it's, it's the whole, you know, one Lay's potato chip <laughs> kind of concept. Um, and you know, as a non-epigrapher, as just as just your average man in the street, I'm just a simple country, you know, country lawyer kind of a thing. Um, I don't really get these epigraphers. I know a lot of epigraphers. I, I like them. They're nice. They're nice guys. Yeah. <clears throat> but it struck me reading this. Um, Literally. <laughs> yeah, something struck me. <laughs> Um, is that they're, they're very much like fine arts connoisseurs. They don't have so many examples. So they focus in on, it's on the little things. And it's like examining Rembrandts. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so at one point in, in one of, in this, in the formal publication, somebody said, you know, talked about the angular race with yes. the short leg yes and i'm like okay you know that's perfectly valid and that's what you do man and i i respect i respect the hell out of that but okay how many how many races do you have <laughs> you're, you're looking n equals three <laughs> <laughs> even n equals 20 or 50 or 100 right. over you're talking about i don't know 
300 years, 400 years until you get a lot, a lot of right. to, to work with. Right. I don't know. Yeah, okay. in, in general I, I, terms, it's a small database. However, I don't know, they know what they're doing. Well, no, I, that's a really well, important point and I want to come back to that. But first, let's get everyone else's contribution. What I think is interesting is going to bring up the can of worms in this whole thing, which is there is a biblical character named Gideon who is also called, called Jerubal. And um, so the articles have all related, including the main publication, have mentioned that this is a name known from a biblical context, although the Jerbal and the Bible uh, lived way up north as opposed to way down south. However, what struck me is that basically, um, here you have a biblical story set in the late 12th, early 11th century, and here you have the same name uh, clearly being a name um, in use in the 12th, 11th century in a different context. So in other right. words, it's a common name. It's like Mary or Sam or whatever, but it's a common name used in this period as opposed to, I don't know, Irving or, or Irving. Gussie. Or, <laughs> you know. Those okay, names I agree with about. you, Rachel. I completely agree with you, but I just want to say one thing. Oh, again with the one thing. <laughs> we can't assume that a story from Judges axiomatically dates Ooh. to the Judges, which we date to the Iron Age one. We can't make that assumption. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, we can look at the, you know, you can talk about when that particular text was, was compiled, when it was edited, when it reached its final form. Look at it, sit, it sits in Laban. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But you know that's part of the whole circularity. So th that's part of the problem with you know using these biblical texts, whatever it is. What was it? Judges, uh, Judges yeah. six, right? So Judges six dates to the twelfth century. Judges five, on the other hand, clearly dates to the ninth century because it uses the word you know blah blah blah. Right. So, well, actually, isn't Judges five the Song of Deborah? And that's I don't know. I'm just... no, but you were right. It's like the oldest text. Or okay. Well, they say it's the oldest text. But that's another kind of canard. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's no. another kind, it's another kind of linguistic voodoo, based on, and I say voodoo in the best possible way, <laughs> <laughs> um, based on on a paucity of com comparative linguistic uh, comparanda. Based on faith, it's well, based on, it's based yeah. on faith. It's well, the, the, the idea that some things are older than other things. Right, okay. that these epigraphers feel in their, in their style, on linguistic style. On, right, right, right. No, and I, and I accept that you can, you can slice and dice and move things around. Right. Just, and some things are older than other things. What? You're, you guys are worse than, than I am. I, I kind of accept on faith the idea of when texts are written because I'm not a text person. So I do trust the epigraphers. Right, that we all do that. And that's cult of the personality. That's why inherently in, in Near Eastern archeology span writ large, but certainly in our little cul-de-sac of Near Eastern archeology, span <laughs> the cult of the personality is paramount. So if an epigrapher that we trust and that we like and we value says something, we just go with that. And, and but we also expect them to trust us on archaeological stratigraphy and other archaeological issues. Well, that's up to them. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, I can't. I really? Can't. How, 
how can we take any of this stuff that seriously? Here, <laughs> right. here exactly. in our little suburban cul-de-sac. Right. And uh, so, so for you, Rachel, it's the uh, it's it's finding this this name that has a biblical pedigree and uh, is linked to another name, Ishbael, which is found in the Kaiafa inscription, which also oh, you know ties in the same kind of dating and the same kind of biblical pedigree, and that all works for you in terms of helping to create a nexus between archaeological data and the biblical narratives. Right. But I, I also just want to, before our listener thinks that I'm just, you know, a maximalist or something, I do want to they drive out. into an, an overpass. Right. Um, <laughs> I do want to point out that, you know, I, I, in terms of the judges' narratives, I go by, you know, the scholarship that I read 30 years ago, which I hope hasn't changed because I still teach it this way, of course, um, that, you know, you can, you can put the, the stories of the judges into an early age, early Iron Age context, but they're not consecutive stories. You need to read them as contemporary stories that there's this little ruler up here and there's this little ruler down there and so on and so forth. So that's how I look at the narratives and the judges. I'm not taking it at face value, but, um, but I am acknowledging the early Iron Age context. See, I think that this discussion, this very learned discussion <laughs> that, we're, that we're having <laughs> is a perfect illustration of, of the logic of the cul-de-sac that we're in. <laughs> and that you have this name and yeah, it's, it's in the Bible. And all of a sudden we're, st we're stuck in this cul-de-sac <laughs> And we can't turn the car around to get out of, out of the, we're in the driveway in a house in the cul-de-sac. And we can't, get, we can't get back to, to larger issues like, oh, you know, how did this object work in the site? And what was the use of language uh, written and writing more broadly in the society? But no, we're, we're, we're arguing we, we, we have literally gone from talking about four letters to arguing about the historicity right. of, of various accounts in judges in less than 10 minutes. Okay, so hold it. a record for us, I think, but, right, but that's okay. Par for the course. Exactly. That's par for the course. Like if you're going to, you know, if you're, if you're going to get into the car and start driving <laughs> around, this is the course that you're driving around. Right. You're not driving around you know, country estates in, 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 uh, in Connecticut, Hotswold. you're driving, yeah. you're driving around in a subdivision in, in central New Jersey. I mean, that's just, <laughs> right. so, Alex, so, we're still stuck in freehold, damn it. <laughs> so to refocus, what for you is the most significant? Well, I want to know why, why some guy wrote his name on a, on a tiny little jar and, and what the, what the, the social, oh, that's a, but that's a question. What's for you the most significant aspect of this? Oh, you're looking for an answer. Yes, I'm looking for what you think is the most. This, this is the greater significance, or is there is there no significance? Are you just do you just find this? I'm trying to adopt a Zen attitude towards it. <laughs> you want to, by the way, speculate wildly, or have you speculate wildly about um, about your question? But first, answer JP's question. <laughs> wait, 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 what's the question? <laughs> What's, what's the most significant? So the, most, the most significant thing. Well, I would go back to, to the development of the, the writing system um, and the, the, the firming up, the congealing, the, the gelling of, of the letters. Because in the, 
you have this long proto-Canaan, you have basically the entire second millennium BCE where they're writing higgly-piggly and you could write from left to right, from right to left, up, down, backwards, nobody, nobody know. The Raish could have a short leg, the Raish <laughs> could have a long leg. Nobody's gonna call you on that. Right. And, and yeah, there, there are relatively few examples but it's all, it's all over the place. But then in this, in this period from, oh, I don't know, let's say broadly 1200 down to 900, things are, things are coming together. There begins to be standardization of, of forms, of structures, of language, and there becomes a right way and a wrong way, so to speak. And by the time you cross over the boundary into the ninth century there it really is kind of pretty well standardized right um not only the but not only the shapes of the letters but the forms that you write in right and the direction that you write in the direction that you write in the kinds of things that you write right and and which element you'll use right i think because we're not epigraphers we have to be a little bit careful because i was looking this stuff up (laughs) Proto-Canaanite versus- Why start now? I was going to say, I think because we're not big for it, we can say whatever the hell we want. Well, well, that's true. (laughs) The International League of Epigraphers is is actually paging me right now. If we had an epigrapher on the line, that epigrapher might tell us that Proto-Canaanite by the 12th century was very much standardized. I don't know, but that's my impression from looking at a few charts I found online. Because they only have five inscriptions. I mean, that's part of, that gets back to the original, sort of this original premise. Let me, let me throw one thing in uh, bef- before we go any further, because it deals with all of this. All right. In one of the assessments by the epigrapher, he refers to this inscription as, as coming from the hand of a trained scribe. Yes, I noticed right? that. And that's a really, that's a huge, <laughs> that's a huge statement. And right. it really sums up everything, I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, you know, the kinds of critiques you were making, Alex, and, and all of this. And, and it's an inference of, you know, huge proportions because it suggests so much. And what I want to ask, because I don't necessarily know that there were any trained scribes. I mean, clearly they were working in other media if there were, because we find nothing, almost nothing. But is being a scribe in the late Bronze Age, even if you're attached to an elite, some kind of royal house or some kind of chiefdom or anything, it doesn't even matter. Is it a vocation or an avocation? Mm. And I don't think there's enough material to, to suggest that it's a vocation. Yeah. Not yeah. enough material, there's not enough socioeconomic hierarchy, there's not enough stuff to administer. There's right. just not enough work. Right, yeah. <laughs> and we've done enough excavation. Right. So, I mean, and, and honestly, if it weren't for Yossi, our people, we would have, we'd have like 50% less material. So, you know, on the other hand, if it's an avocation, then you can imagine some, you know, somebody with a nice hand, you know, is, re- you know, is recognized. Right. You know? Call Bob. Right. Bob, Bob is very good at this kind of thing. Exactly. Bob, I have this pot. Can you write my name on it? Please? Exactly. That's it. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. And... And, you know, Bob or Roberta or whomever, you know, when there's a document to be, to be written on, because presumably there has to be some kind of 
you know, material that they're writing on that we don't have, papyrus or something, um, that, that, that these part-time scribes doing it as an avocation would be doing that work as well. Yeah. Right. And when, when you teach kids today how to write, that's not their vocation when they learn how to write. Nor is it the teacher's vocation. Right. Yeah. So uh, the whole concept of a trained scribe is, I think, a very broad notion, really. It's, it's a skill that you acquire. You're either good at it or you're not good at it. You use it a lot or you don't use it a lot. You have d the dexterity and the muscle memory to, to do it. And they weren't honestly doing it a, a whole hell of a lot. Right. So what does it mean to be a trained scribe? Right. But, as but, opposed to 300 years later, 200 years later. Or as opposed to 300 or 400 miles to the north or the northeast. Or to the west, 500 miles to the west. Or to the west or, or, or to the south. So, right. So, but, but when an epigrapher uses the term trained scribe for this particular inscription, we know that they're probably using it in the way that they would use it for Mesopotamia yes. or any of the Syrian city-states or in Egypt in which there was scribal training, a very, very rigorous kind of scribal training. Right, but in those, in those societies, <laughs> your dad sends you to scribal school when you're like eight. And, right. that's, and that's basically what you do for the rest of your life. Right. It's an actual, it's an actual vocation. I mean, unless you, you suck at it. And, <laughs> that would have been, been me. <laughs> or, or, if or if your dad couldn't, couldn't pay for it. And I think there are texts about both of these kinds of situations. In Mesopotamia. In Mesopotamia. Yeah. Um, but but that's all you do, and then when you when you finally graduate, and, you know you have your, you move your, your tassel <laughs> from one side of to the other. That's all you do for the rest of your life. Is you just write stuff on little clay tablets or on papyrus scrolls. Right. That's a vocation. Yeah, but right. you know what? It's also I don't know. <clears throat> or I mean, are we just being? Or do we have to be relativistic about this? Well, even if we're relativistic, it's it's such a departure from the way you would use the word trained scribe in these other societies. True. And honestly, it's a little bit much. All right, but on the other hand, the reasons he says that this is the hand of a trained scribe is because of the consistent lettering, the spacing, the slant, all this stuff that- It's, like cake, letters. it's like cake decorating. Yeah, it's a skill. It's a <laughs> real- Yeah, it's gonna say, but... have you ever tried decorating cake? <laughs> <laughs> We've got a cake right here. We're gonna actually do, we're gonna, we're gonna make a little video. <laughs> Check out our YouTube channel. <laughs> Cake decorating and no, scribal training. It's a it's a it's a real skill. It's an actual thing. It, but it's it's a mind it's a mind body thing, <clears throat> and you're dealing. But you're also dealing with an alphabet that only has two dozen plus letters. So it's actually less difficult than cake decorating. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> this is going off in weird directions. <laughs> exactly, that's the point. <laughs> Can I change the conversation and bring up something completely different? Sure. Okay, sure. good. So I believe that the excavators have at least tentatively identified the site as Ziklag. 
Yes. Um, so can we can we go off on that tangent for a little while instead? I didn't even notice that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was so incensed by whatever it was. I was going to say. <laughs> right. So, so oh, Tuplug is this city that David, before he becomes king, when he's still running around and King Saul is chasing him, he hooks up with the Philistines and- um, Whoa, 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 that, you can't yeah, say that You anymore. might want to rephrase that. Because <laughs> there's enough problems with, with, with David and Jonathan. We don't need him to up with the Philistines. He, he, um, he becomes friendly with the Philistines, particularly with a Philistine king who likes him so much that he says, here, why don't you govern this little city of Siklag? And David goes and he governs Siklag. So like a little practice city for him. Right. right. And so the implication is that Siklag is a Philistine city. And right. apparently they have found um, in these, in, in Herbert El Rai, they found enough Philistine pottery to to say that this might be Siklag. And I assume also on geographic bases, et cetera. Um, so if we're gonna say that this is Philistine Siklag, then what I thought, which, which I think is an if, like I'm not, you know, I need, I need to read more to be convinced of that, but regardless- You're saying it, but you're not saying it. Yeah, I'm saying it, but I'm not saying it exactly. Um, so then you have this Canaanite name, right? And the inscription, Jerubal is a Canaanite name uh, theophoric with the Canaanite god Baal, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, and so we've got some sort of a mixed Canaanite Philistine population. They were all mixed. They were all mixed. And I was also going to say that the biblical Gideon slash Jerubal is of a Israelite family. I'm sorry, I just brought it back to the biblical crap, but, uh, but um, as, as is your want, as is my want. <laughs> uh, but he, so he's from an Israelite tribe, I think Manasseh, but um, he is, you know, his father is a Baal and Asherah worshiper and he knocks down the Baal and Asherah altars and, and poles so that we've got a mixed Israelite Canaanite. Everybody has Baal issues with there. their fathers. That's true. In, especially in this period. Yeah, yeah. And now so, I forgot my main point. Well, so the point about Ziklag is going to, is a pet peeve of mine. Okay. Because if the biblical authors consider this tiny little schmitzik of a site a city, then that shows us how warped the biblical <laughs> author's understanding is of their socio-spatial context. It shows us why they think there could have been a flood when there were no viable rivers to flood. It shows us that they had no real understanding of, of what urbanism meant in the you know, adjacent areas. And it shows us how self-aggrandizing they are right. to call something like, like Herbert El Rey a city. And the same thing with Kaifa. If Kaifa is a city, well, it's not a city. Shah Orion. It has right. two gates. It, it has two gates. Right. right. And it's, um, and, but it, it too yeah. is not a city. And that just shows you that these biblical authors are working in their own little, you know. It's a cul-de-sac, yeah, well, man. It's a, it's a whole ship in a bottle. They're building they, a ship in a bottle. Their, cul their cul-de-sac has become our cul-de-sac. <laughs> <laughs> caring is caring. <laughs> it's... And there's some kind of homeowners association that just maintains this little closed mentality. Um, okay, so open over up the thousand, over you know, thousands of years. So how would what would your what would your first step be in opening up the mentality? Well, I would first of all connect this, connect the writing with what comes later, as a way of understanding uh, the the role of writing and literacy and ooh scribal 
with big air quotes kind of culture um, in the Levant, and especially the Southern Levant, in the first millennium BCE. So after 900-ish, and certainly as you get down into you know, the eighth century, you have writing. And we've, we've talked about this before, and, and maybe we were a little bit too uh, dismissive of it, because I've been, you know. <laughs> I know, it would be very out of character. But I've been reading up on, on Bulai, because last, last time, as our listener will recall, we we're talking about these, these uh, fossil shark teeth, but found in a context with 200 bulli. And that, that actually was like six or seven years ago that they were found. Right. Couple hundred bulli. And when you add up all of the bulli from well, from you know, actual contexts, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So they're, and, and they're sealed with names and they're going on either rolled up papyri, they're rolled up and they're tied up and the, the clay blob goes on it and it gets pressed with a seal. And that's a kind of a real specialty is making these seals because that you really have to know what the hell you're doing. Um, and, but we don't have any of the, of the documents except right. for a few from much, much later, Wadi Dahlia, places like that. Um, and they're also sealing other things like boxes and, and wax right. boards and who the hell knows what else. Right. So there's a lot of writing that's going on that starts out as, you know, one guy saying, Bob, write, write my name on my jar. And then it- That's that though. Right, but, but apropos of our training, that is all part of secondary state formation. Right. And, and so we don't have the bullye now in the, in the iron one. We don't even really have a lot of seals um and right. that all begins to develop when you get you know these emergent little state-like nodes that right. actually need necessitate some kind of administration right and there's and a lot of them are public officials and a lot of them are private um private people conducting presumably economic uh, activities but we don't know what else what other kinds of uh writing genres my point being that from an era at whatever 1100 where there's ludicrously small amounts of, of writing <laughs> um and you know a, a real skilled scribe can actually make a circle with a dot in it <laughs> 300 years <laughs> 300 years later People are, are sending memos and they're sending contracts, presumably, and documents and they're beginning to write deep thoughts and right. sealing them and guys specialize in carving the seals with chickens on them and <laughs> royal insignia and whatnot. So, and it, yes, it's, it's state related, but it's also conceptual within the society that, oh, writing is like a real thing. Writing is a way to communicate uh, contemporaneously, but also through time. That's true. Because they're, they're saving, they're saving documents, and we only have the bulli, which are, you know, authentication devices. They're security devices, but they're meant to exist over a period of time. So well, that's an inference. I don't know about. I mean, it's they're meant to exist for some period of time. Some but, period of time. But they're right. All right, but but with all this in mind. So why does 
Drubal, go to Bob and say, hey, Bob, write my name on this flask or on this juglet. Um, well, so if it's an avocation, he's there, that's being done for some very, very personal slash idiosyncratic reason, or else we'd have a lot more. We'd have letters all over the place. That's a very good point, right. And we do, and we do you know, if you were to look, if you were to, to round up all of the, uh, you know, letters found inscribed, literally etched into pottery from the 10th century, I'm sure it's probably more than we think that there yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. You have things like the, you know, the arrows that have, you know, right. these laconic inscriptions on them that say, you know, whatever. To, yeah. Right. All that kind of stuff. So I think that there is maybe a, a slightly larger body of material out there, but given the amount of excavation that's been done and the length of time that those excavations have been occurring, it's still relatively small. And more importantly for me, all of the inscriptions are really, really, really short and laconic, yeah. um, which, which would signify to me that, you know, that people are doing this for kinds of personal reasons that we may never get to the motivation of them. Like, I just want my name on this vessel. See, and I'm not satisfied with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but what else, what else could it be given that this is, it's not a genre of literature. No, that's, no, no, no. You're, it's, you're a device. it's a device. If we were to write some historical fiction based on this. <laughs> well, <laughs> is that, that what we do? Yeah, well, <laughs> um, you know, we could have maybe, so maybe there's olive oil in here. Maybe that olive oil um, is used for a ritual purpose. Um, maybe oh, it's just- Now you're, right. But now you're just, I mean, you know. Now we're back into the, haven't we talked about olive oil or olive pits? in an early podcast yeah but you know okay but so what all right so so there's a so the so the inscription relates to the vessel relates to the contents yeah 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 so i'll allow it thank you he wants the stuff in this jar to be not you know don't drink my soda kind of right don't yeah don't touch my stuff yeah yeah yeah, but he's but maybe he's doing it because it's actually important stuff. Uh, you know, it's his. It's important. Right. Well, we're we're in a domestic context here. Um, There's nothing important about this because it was refuse. Right. But at one point, it wasn't refuse. <laughs> well, you could say that about really everything and everyone. <laughs> well, that's very true. Um, but at one point, it wasn't refuse, and and he was either living in a house in the area, or maybe he was living in another part of the area and he had a job that was publicly oriented and he needed the soil or- Whoa, 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 where'd you get the publicly oriented? Yeah, really, so- Somewhere oh. else on the site, there was a large public building. <laughs> this, this, this is my soda. Don't touch my soda. All right. This, this, is an, this is a whole discursus on the individual archeologist or historian or epigrapher making inferences. Right. Are, you, are you a minimalist or a maximalist? Yeah, it's the inferential you, mindset. Right. When you see four letters, do you see a scribal academy? <laughs> or or do, you see some, do you see some jamoke, you know, cribbing, you know, a couple of letters that he picked up, you know, or she picked up on the backside of, uh, of a public building someplace? So it all, that's all, that all depends on the, the, the personal disposition of, of the interrogator. And that's, that's what, that's really the heart 
of archaeological interpretation, whether you're a minimalist or a maximalist or where you are in that big gray area. Which Right, and in a comparative sense, again, uh, as a matter of context, if you saw four letters, even four alphabetic letters written on something in contemporary Mesopotamia or Egypt, you'd say, those are four letters, what's right. for lunch? <laughs> you know? Exactly. Right, but um, we're not in Mesopotamia. No, 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 no. But this is this is an important this is a highly important point. <laughs> where's, my, where's, is, my, where's my shoe, damn it? <laughs> this is important. Man starts banging crock on, on table. <laughs> but this speaks to the cul-de-sac, damn it. Oh. That that we yeah, we have we have very little to work with, but we can either go crazy with it, right, or or we can like really go crazy with it. Right. right. Well, and, and what are the limits? Where right. does well, modesty, no limits. Modesty. Modesty is, but modesty is out, right? <laughs> we're, at the, we're at the tail end of the Enlightenment, and everything <laughs> is, you oh. know, it, everything is either personal grievance or personal glorification. There's no modesty involved. Every single find is, is of extraordinary importance. And, and, and now, you know, there are literally online journals being conjured up on a daily basis to get this stuff out there, to publish this stuff, et cetera. So modesty is out and it's, you know, and it's all about the narrative. It's, it's all about, about the imagination and embracing human potential through actualizing and realizing imagination by just <laughs> shoveling it out as, as quickly as possible. Right. I mean, in that regard, these articles were somewhat dispassionate pointing, pointing out that that Yerubael is, as found in the Hebrew Bible, is from the north, and th this shirt is found in the south, so right. maybe not the same person. Right, but it also said it's really not that far away. Right, exactly, exactly, right. Exactly. <laughs> so, but if I, this... That was the best part of the whole article. <laughs> but if this... Were... In a purely practical sense, and I don't even know if I should, should go here, but the more publicity you can get for your find for right, your site, sure. the more funding you get for your find well, for your site. And that's great. And here we are, here we are adding yeah. to that. That's true. Right. We're, the, we're the worst. We're the <laughs> lowest rung on this. We're just, we're pimping out whatever we find in the press. That's right. True. And we don't even get paid for it that's as true. much as, you know, so let's put out a plea. <laughs> <laughs> Please look on our website for our Patreon link. That's right. <laughs> Or, you know, or, or just go to your mom and dad's purse and pull out some of those green pieces of paper. I did that joke before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, okay, look, you got to work with what you got to work with. Right, right. You know, and, uh, and if you have an audience, then, you know. As then, we apparently do. Or I wasn't even thinking of us. I was thinking about, you know, the audience for this kind of stuff. Right. Then, you know, absolutely. Like, right. And look, the guys who, who did the work here, they did a first-rate job. They're first-rate they're, they're first uh, first scholars. And, you know, they're going down all, to their credit. They're, they're dispassionately presenting. Yep. And they're going down all of the different um, avenues towards the cul-de-sac where we live <laughs> and or, or seem, seem to be relegated. Um, and so, call a kavod to them, you know? Bully, bully to them. Bulla to them. <laughs> oh, bulla. Well, yeah. the bulla. I, I, I did my bullish stick already. Right. Um, Do it again. But I, I think uh, I think we gotta reevaluate the the mental 
the mental processes, the mentalities that go from Bob, write, write my name to, <laughs> you know, Miss Mandelsham, take a letter. <laughs> in in a, now maybe 300 years, 300 years is a long time to us. Um, and in our time, what do we, you know, we've seen the invention of the typewriter. We've seen right. the invention of the personal computer. We have them in our hands now. So, you know, their world speeded up and has all these new potentials that came, came out of just four little letters. That's right. That's right. All right. We should wrap it up. Let's do some <laughs> final thoughts. <laughs> final thoughts. I'll give you a final thought. As, as you were talking just now, I was thinking about how much the English language has changed over just a couple of hundred years. Oh, that's right. Chaucer. Um, Chaucer. You want to recite your Chaucer? Right. Even 19th century, just sort of normal phrases. Um, and, and then, you know, I don't understand the slang that my kids speak. Um, so, or I've never heard of the slang that my kids They're speak. not even speaking, they just text. They just text, that's sure. You LOL, <laughs> smiley face. Right. Well, we are becoming an icon-based society. Right. So in that regard, we're, we're sort of going, you know, back Backwards. to, back to back millennium uh, and for, for Canaan back to the early second millennium right but, but at the speed things are going we're going to reinvent the alphabet <laughs> and and the and the capabilities of full full using full words and language probably i don't know september october <laughs> at the, at the <laughs> latest the semester to begin <laughs> <laughs> well i don't think you're gonna get much uh much many happier results when the semester begins but no. maybe after that right right okay all right, keep those cards and letters coming, um, listeners. We uh, we should do a, an all listener uh, response show one of these days too. <laughs> Please write in your comments. <laughs> all right. Okay. Okay. And we're out. <laughs> well, we're certainly glad that no one has stolen our lunches from the break room while we were doing this podcast. So we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, educator in residence at the Savannah Music Festival for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Carter Dinsmore and Company of Cambridge, Massachusetts, the world's largest manufacturer of printing ink. Whether you need ink for a printing press or a fountain pen or just carbon paper to make all important copies, Carter Dinsmore and Company is your source. To get in touch, use an alphabet to leave us a comment Send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.